Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that what you ordained and what you allowed to happen in our lives over this past week to lead us right back to this point, lead us right back into your house, singing songs to you, looking at and learning from your word, talking to you, being together as your children, as the body of Christ, experiencing the movement of the Holy Spirit in this place. Lord, we thank you that this life is, as your word tells us, it's but a vapor, and it's here and it's gone. And what we have to look forward to is an eternity spent with you. And while we're still on this earth and we still have breath, you have work for us to do, to bear the message of Jesus and his salvation and love and truth to this dark and hurting world. I pray that you continue to use us as you continue to strengthen us in and through your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. George Barna, the founder of the Barna Group, a research firm that studies religious beliefs of Americans in general and, and, and Christians specifically, and the director of the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, conducted a study in 2020 about the beliefs of the afterlife of both the average American and those who consider themselves to be Christians. This study was referenced in a Christian Post article published the same year. The first conclusion that this study found was, quote, overall, 54% of U.S. adults believe they will get to heaven after they die, and only 2% believe they are going to hell. Let that sink in. <laughs> Additionally, 63% of Americans believe, quote, Having faith matters more than which faith you have, end quote, 63% of Americans. George Barna from the study made the observation that Americans are, quote, in an anything goes mindset when it comes to faith, morals, values, and lifestyle, end quote. No doubt many of us know someone with that mentality. Maybe you have that mentality yourself. Believe whatever you want as long as you have some kind of faith and generally try to be a good person. If you do that, you'll avoid being the 2% who believe they're going to hell. That's not surprising, those findings. But what is downright shocking, at least it was to me, is what this poll also found. This poll also found, quote, a majority of people who describe themselves as, as Christian, a 50, just over half, 52%, accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. That you have to do good works to earn your way into God's favor. And the study also found that, quote, huge proportions of people end quote, associated with churches whose official doctrine says eternal salvation only comes from embracing Jesus Christ as Savior, quote, believe that a person can qualify for heaven by being or doing good, end quote. And that's it. That includes close to half of all adults associated with Pentecostal, 
at 46%, mainline, mainline Protestant at 44%, and evangelical at 41% churches. A much larger share of Catholics at 70% embrace that point of view of you need to do good works to earn God's favor and earn your way into heaven. Len Munsell, president of Arizona Christian University, made this quote that sums up the pathetically woeful state of supposedly Christian faith in America, and I think he's spot on with this. He said, quote, The lack of understanding of basic Christian theology is stunning, with potentially devastating consequences for individual souls and really for all aspects of American life and culture, end quote. Munsell went on to say, quote, it's a wake-up call for the church and for leaders in all areas of influence to speak, teach, and work to restore biblical truth. And many souls will be lost if people are misled by the false notion that we can earn our way to heaven rather than recognizing the truth that Christ alone and his righteousness are the basis for our salvation, end quote. Like I said, he's 100% spot on with that statement. There are two prevailing and the most prevalent false gospels floating around today. Number one, the number one false gospel. Don't make anyone feel judged or offended by what you believe or say about what you believe, which then directly factors into false gospel number two, just try to be a good person and do some good things and you automatically get into heaven. Both of these are thoroughly and completely false gospels because who is not connected to, at all to either one of these? And furthermore, isn't even mentioned at all in these. Jesus, at all, not even mentioned. What does Jesus say about this? What does Jesus say in this morning's passage that outright shatters what most people think about Christianity, faith, and getting into heaven? Even within a lot of American churches today. What does that absolutely crucially mean for us and our faith? And how do we counteract these false gospels that have already taken root in way too many American churches? We just need to recap what we talked about last week for a bit because it flows directly into what Jesus says next in the first verse of this morning's passage. Last week, we talked about how Jesus had mentioned already, which we looked at a few weeks ago, that where he was going, his disciples that were gathered around the Passover table with him could not go. And when we covered the, these verses, we saw how they were all in connection with Jesus' impending crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Since that was all based on God the Son's complete and thorough obedience to God the Father, even to the point of being put to death on a cross, the glorification that would occur through it could only happen between these two members of the Trinity and could not include any fallen sinful human beings. Now the result 
of this obedience and glorification would directly benefit fallen sinful human beings as it would be the only basis for the salvation of any of our souls. When Simon Peter could only conceive that Jesus was merely talking about his physical location and sought to clarify what Jesus had just said as such, Jesus did clarify that where he was going, death, resurrection, and ascension, Peter could not go yet, but he would eventually. We talked last week about how that's the truth for all of us. That Jesus is the first fruits. And if we die before he comes back, he's the prototype. If we die before he comes back, our soul will go to the place he's prepared for all those who trust in him for their salvation and eternity. A place of safety, belonging, love, and provision. The Father's heavenly household. Then when Jesus comes back at some point, pretty, probably pretty soon, at the point of the rapture, we will be given resurrection bodies, just like Jesus's, and then ascend to him in the clouds where we will be with him forever. We talked a lot more extensively about what all of that means last week. So if you missed that, you can look that up on our website. It's directly taken out of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. But that was the quick recap that directly impacts what we'll read next. Jesus has been talking about where he would be going and where believers in him would soon go to be with him, either their souls by way of physical death or his return for them. All this time Jesus had been with his disciples, he had revealed to them that he was the revelation of God the Father as the Father's representative and as God himself and having been with him since eternity past. Anything Jesus had taught his disciples had been directly given to him by God the Father to teach them. As such, it should come as no surprise to them or to us that Jesus had already revealed to his disciples how to get to where he was going. That's what finally brings us to our passage this morning in verse 4 of chapter 14. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 14. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 14. It's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You can look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor. There's no shame in that. I want us all to see this together. John chapter 14. We're going to pick up in verse 4. And we read this. Jesus directly says, and you know the way where I am going. I've already told you, in other words. As Jesus says here, as his faithful 11, because remember Judas Iscariot had already left by this point, if they had been paying attention to him these past three and a half years, they should be fully aware of what it took for them to get to God the Father's household of heaven. Peter has been the only one really interacting with Jesus at this point. But as one biblical scholar points out, everyone there is pretty confused. They, they had all the information, but they wouldn't fully understand what Jesus is getting at here until after his death and resurrection, and not fully until the Holy Spirit, who would guide them in all truth, would be poured out on them on the day of Pentecost. 
One of the others speaks up at this point. That guy's name is Thomas, verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? In other words, Thomas is saying, but Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How would we know the way to get there? If you're confused, it's a legitimate question. To know the way somewhere, you first need to know the location of the destination, where you're going in the first place, right? Jesus, knowing that eventually these faithful 11 would put all the pieces together, simply continues with the spiritual language he's been using since he revealed to them that one of them would betray him to death and that betrayer had unexpectedly taken off. Because Jesus knows that the Holy Spirit would confirm all of this in his followers' hearts, Jesus simply proceeds with what he knows he's talking about. That goes back to our quick recap earlier of what Jesus had been revealing to them up to that point. It all culminated in what we talked about last week, that Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension would be the first fruits or prototype of what every believer in him would get to experience and enjoy. Death would only merely be a doorway for a believer's soul to enter his presence and his father's household of heaven. And the rapture of his church would be the resurrection and reuniting of these souls with their glorified bodies and the ascension of every believer in him to enjoy eternal joy with him forever. That's the destination that Jesus is getting at here. Jesus just told his disciples that they already should know the way to that destination. But since they still couldn't wrap their minds around that, Jesus comes right out and confirms what the way to that destination is and only is. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. How many of you have heard that verse before? Very famous verse. I love this verse because it, it's right up there with John 3.16 and verses that make up the Romans road that give the gospel message of salvation and eternal life in a nutshell. In one verse. Because of this, this one verse has so much packed into it, and this one verse will be what we spend the remainder of this morning's message time on. First off, this one verse completely shatters the belief and false gospel that anything goes, that all roads lead to heaven, that all religions and beliefs are basically the same and lead to basically the same afterlife. And that as long as you believe in some kind of higher power and just try to be a good person, you will automatically go to that good afterlife. This one verse destroys that entire worldview in one fell swoop. Why? Firstly, because Jesus establishes his authority in what he says next. As one biblical scholar noted, this is the sixth of Jesus' I am statements indicating that Jesus is going further than just simply making a statement about himself. Who else used the phrase, I am, to describe himself? 
God the Father in having a conversation with Moses from the burning bush. So Jesus is going further than just simply making a statement about himself here. He starts right out with this verse by once again indicating that he is none other than God himself. And as such, has the universal sovereignty and authority to make this absolutely definitive statement that affects once and for all the way to heaven. This is it. There is none other. Therefore, this is not a human construct. This is not what something that humanity over the past thousands of years came up with or what we hope will happen or a conglomeration of all faiths into a shallow understanding. This is a declaration from the creator of the universe and flat out is what it is. There is no bordering. There is no agreeing to disagree with this. No making a deal. No getting around it. And it is what it is. No matter how unfair we think it is or how much we want to rant against it. This is already offensive because it throws all other so-called authorities, deities, or beliefs right out the window. So in effect, by Jesus starting out this verse by declaring, I am, that fact destroys the other prevalent false gospel of just don't offend or judge anyone. Because right off the bat, he's being offensive. By Jesus already stating that everything he is about to say is built upon his authority as God saying it, he's offending and he's judging all other beliefs as false, wrong, and lies. Let's be clear about that here. This is the established foundation, right here, this is the established foundation of universal and unequivocal authority and truth that what follows is built upon. The next three statements that Jesus makes are entirely and directly based on his authority as I am. And the English translation here reflects what the Greek intention is. That each of these following three statements are prefaced with the definitive the article. Not a, the, the one and only. Just as Jesus already confirmed that the one God is the sole authority to what will follow, Jesus as the Son within that Trinitarian Godhead is the only of what he says next. Everybody still with me? Okay. There is none other. There is no other interpretation. There is no other understanding. There is no other prophet or movement or belief. He is it and it alone. He alone is the the in what will follow. And for each of the following three statements, what we have to realize is that none of this is new. Jesus is not revealing brand new information hot off the presses that was never before revealed to the world here. This is the way that it's always been. Jesus is just confirming that. And bringing it all to light again after sinful humanity buried it for so long. The first statement is, I am the way. 
I am the way. Jesus has already revealed what the destination is. For the disciples who are still confused, Jesus confirms what, or rather who, the only way to that destination is. Again, this isn't new information. This is the way God's plan as I am has always been. In God's plan for his created human beings, Jesus has always been the way to their eternal destination throughout all of human history. We'll come back to this in a little bit, but it was through Jesus that all of creation and specifically human beings have our life and existence and being in the first place. The same writer started the same gospel right off with that basic foundation of theology when he wrote, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, through Jesus, the Son. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. From the very beginning, Jesus was the way through which God created humanity and the human soul. It only makes perfect biblical sense then that Jesus is then oppositely the way through which humanity and the human soul connects back to our creator. And Jesus has always been the way that humanity relates to and connects with God. As one biblical scholar confirms, when Genesis 3.8 describes Adam and Eve hearing the sound of God walking in the Garden of Eden after they sinned, it indicates that the act of walking and the sound of, the, of that walking included the use of physical feet and the appearance of God in a visible and physical form. Much like other descriptions of this in other places of Scripture, this is most likely the pre-incarnate Son of God, or Jesus, before he took on human flesh and was born as a baby through a human mother. So in other words, Jesus was the way for humans to relate to and connect with God from the very beginning in the garden he created for them. When humanity sinned, that relation became one of judgment and cursing and that connection broken. But in God's grace, when he placed the curse of sin on humanity and on this earth, he included right along with that a deliverer from that curse of sin found in Genesis 3.15 and it would be through none other than himself, the Son of God. The way through whom humanity existed in the first place, and the way through whom humanity and the relation to and connection with God would be restored. This deliverer as the way of forgiveness of sin, restoration to God, and entrance into his household of heaven given is revealed further and further through prophecy throughout the next 1,500 years after the very first prophecy was recorded in writing until that deliverer arrived on earth. Some of these prophecies specify details that only this messianic deliverer could fulfill. That he would come through the bloodline of Jacob's son Judah, then through King David, that he would have to arrive in human history before Israel's right to judge capital cases was taken away from them, say, by the Romans, 
that he would be born in the town of Bethlehem, that he would have to arrive in human history before all the tribal records were destroyed in 70 AD, that his arrival would be heralded by a unique star, that he would have to be born seemingly impossibly from a virgin, that he would be killed by way of crucifixion, that he would not be abandoned to death but rise again, and that he would rule over a kingdom that would last for all of eternity. But most pertinent to this morning's discussion, the deliverer would be the sin offering and sacrifice and the way for this to happen. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, a sin offering, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities, their sin. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Who are the transgressors? All of us, including the guy standing up here. What do we see here that is especially important to Jesus as the way? That the prophesied messianic deliverer would be the fulfillment of the sacrifice of the sin or guilt offering in death, bearing the sins of the many who would put their trust in him, putting those to death when he was put to death, and through that be the intercessor or the mediator of what will be revealed as the new covenant, or another meaning, the way through, you, through whom humans would be restored to God and his household of heaven. The New Testament confirms this with, For Christ also died for sins once for all, just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. For, for while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What we also see from scripture is that contrary to what a lot of American Christians believe, we simply cannot earn our salvation through good works or just generally trying to be a good person. When Jesus says, I am the way, he means He's the way. And we cannot add anything to needing to earn our salvation with good works. Paul also writes, For by grace, it's only by God's grace on you, you have been saved through your faith in Jesus. And this is not of yourselves. It's not anything you could do. It is a gift. It's extended as a gift to you. Not a result of works so that no one may boast and say, look at what a good person I am. We're all sinners. We're all in need of a Savior. It's only by God's grace and Jesus dying on the cross for us that we have any hope so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In other words, it's only through God's grace and gifting us the faith we put into Jesus for our salvation, not earning that salvation through our good works. We are to do good works as a result of that salvation. 
not as a requirement of earning that salvation. Everybody still with me? Okay. What, is that, what does all that also tell us? That it's not enough to simply believe in Jesus or believe in God or believe in some kind of higher power. To have Jesus as the way to God, you have to see that your sins condemn you. You cannot earn your way out of that. And that if it weren't for the deliverer taking those sins upon himself in death, you would be forever lost in those sins and condemned to hell. And that in order to have Jesus as the way for you, you also have to repent of the sins he died to deliver you from. Repenting of or turning 180 from also means you default to him as the authority over the rest of your life as I am. This was just scratching the surface of the way, but it gives us the basic knowledge that this is nothing new for humanity in human history. Jesus has always been the way for humanity. The way through whom humanity and the human soul even exists in the first place. Therefore, the way through whom God relates to humanity and through whom through whom humanity relates to God, and therefore the way through sinful humanity is restored to God and his household of heaven. Likewise, it's nothing new for humanity and human history that Jesus has always been the truth, and therefore the revelation of God's wisdom to humanity, and therefore Jesus has always been the embodiment and revelation of what truth is and the standard of righteousness for humanity. Again, there is no anything goes, or you have your truth and I have mine, or I'll live the way I want and you live the way you want and you shouldn't judge me for it. There is none of that. Jesus as the truth completely destroys any and all of those worldviews. Again, the Apostle John establishes this at the very beginning of this gospel before he moves on to anything else. In fact, it's the very first verse of this gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If we can remember, <laughs> almost two and a half years ago, when we started this Gospel of John series and covered this first verse, you'll remember that we delved into this term, the Word. John has several concepts already in existence in mind, but wraps them all up into the same person. Since Jesus is both for his own Jewish people and for us filthy Gentiles, he is the fulfillment of both of their concepts of the Word. In Jewish understanding and in the book of Proverbs, God's wisdom or truth or written word is personified as a person. In Greek understanding, the word was this force that both created and holds the universe together. John, through the Holy Spirit, connected to both groups of people he was seeking to reach with his gospel, in other words, everyone, by connecting both of their understandings of this concept of the word and saying, that exists, that being exists. 
And he's not just the literary personification of the word or wisdom of God. He's not just a force that created and upholds the universe. He is God the Son, who is also the embodiment of both of these. Above both of these concepts is the references in Genesis. When God created the universe, he what? Spoke it into existence through what? His word. Or God the Son that we already talked about. That everything in the universe exists, including the revelation of the wisdom or truth of God himself into that universe. We see that reference next in the same prologue of John's gospel. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Those are the next verses in John 1. We see the concept of light symbolizing the wisdom and truth of God throughout the rest of Scripture. In fact, the very first thing God introduced into his creation was what? Was what? Light. I give you a big hint there. Okay. Let there be light. Right? Okay. What that is, is a reference to through the Son, as the embodiment of it, God revealing his wisdom and truth into the universe. Let there be light. Not only was it physical light, but what light represented. His wisdom his truth into this universe. The menorah and the tabernacle and the temple represented God's truth as the light to humanity. Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah would be the light to the nations or the Gentiles too, or in other words, the whole world. Truth starts with God. Truth starts with God, not the culture. Not the masses, not what's popular. God and God alone. And God reveals his truth and his standards of what's righteous and what he calls sin through his word. Psalm 119.160 tells us exactly. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. There's no getting around that. There is absolute truth. And it's what God reveals in his word. And that word tells us what his standard of righteousness is. Furthermore, what the Holy Spirit reveals through John and what Jesus says in this verse is that he is the ultimate embodiment of that truth. Ultimately, everything in God's word, what he's revealed in his wisdom, and what is the embodiment of God's righteousness is all fulfilled in Jesus as the truth. As such, the only way we have access to that truth and righteousness is by taking the way to that. Jesus and his death and resurrection being the only way to provide access to that. Through us taking that and being spiritually born again, we're then immediately indwelt by the Holy Spirit of truth, who Jesus says guides his disciples in all truth by opening our eyes to seeing the truth of, understanding the truth of, and empowering to live the righteousness of the word of God. 
God's revealed truth and wisdom is completely wrapped up in the person of the Son of God. Again, that truth is symbolized by the light of God. God's truth as the light would both not be comprehended by the darkness of the world, but also not be overtaken or defeated by the darkness of the world. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 1, which you've heard me reference over and over again, that God purposely designed his plan of salvation through Jesus to not be understood by any way other than the Holy Spirit of truth, opening human eyes to see it and understand it. So it's going to look like nonsense and foolishness to everyone else. And we know from the rest of Scripture that the darkness of chaos, Satan, his demons, sin, this world and its philosophies, and death cannot and will not defeat the light of Jesus as God's truth. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Thirdly, Jesus makes the definitive statement, I am the life. And just like the other two statements, this is nothing new. Fascinatingly, this third statement is the summation of what has already been revealed. In John 1, John wrote that the word, or the truth of God as the light, was also the way God created everything in the universe and how that creation would relate and connect to him, thereby being the life. Both the creator of human life and of the human soul, but also being the life that is restored to those humans who would accept him as the only way to restoration to God and all of his truth and life, both in this life and for eternal life. We've seen throughout God's word and in this message how Jesus is the only way to eternal life. It started with our creation and creation of the human soul and as being the conduit or mediator between how God and humanity relates and connects with each other. It continued through his death and resurrection as the way to pay for our sins and provide the way for us to repent of those sins and be restored to God and therefore his household of heaven. And he will be the one to bring us to that household of heaven someday. It's also through him and God the Father that the Holy Spirit is given to indwell us. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to guide us in the truth of God and his word, convict us according to God's standard of righteousness, obey, open our spiritual eyes to obey and enable us, to accept Jesus as the way to salvation and repentance of our sins, remind us of the truth of who we are as God's adopted children, and to provide the seal and confirmation of our eternal life. The Holy Spirit also gives us spiritual, a, a spiritual fountain of life as we walk this world. Jesus revealed seven chapters earlier on the last and greatest day of the last feast of, of the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus would observe before his death and resurrection. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, "If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink." He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit is the rivers of living water. 
flowing from his indwelling of our innermost being. He gives us the very power of God to fight temptation, overcome the darkness of this world and demonic attacks, the guidance of God's word to navigate through every single kind of dilemma or difficult situation, the fruits of the Spirit to love how God wants us to love, to have endless joy by looking for God's grace no matter the heartache, to have never-ending peace and patience no matter the difficulty, and to be given the new life in Christ. In short, like Jesus declared in those verses, anyone who comes to him as the way to salvation from sin and restoration to God and the truth as the embodiment of the wisdom, truth, and righteousness revealed in God's word will be given the Holy Spirit of never-ending rivers of living water, ultimately resulting in eternal life in God's household of heaven. Lastly, as if he wasn't clear enough at the very beginning of verse 6 with the foundational statement of I am as this established and sole authority of what would follow, Jesus clearly sums it all up with what he says last in verse 6. No one, it doesn't matter how good you think you are, no one comes to the Father except but through me. Jesus is it and it alone. You can either take him or leave him, but that does not change what the truth and plan that God established before he even uttered the words, let there be light, is. And God's word is especially clear that anyone who continually rejects Jesus as the way, the truth, and the light, and never fully accepts him as that, either by flat out rejecting him or by sitting on the fence their entire life, claiming the lazy title of agnostic, will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire in torment for all of eternity. Instead of claiming that that's unfair, that there's only one way to God, which is repenting of our sin and accepting Jesus as the way through his death and resurrection and the only truth of living according to God's righteous standards through the only life of the Holy Spirit's empowerment to do so, we should be grateful that God loved us enough while we were enemies of him to even provide a way, the way, for us to be restored to him and be given the confidence, hope, and peace of, that, of, of all that restoration, both in this life and for all of eternity. None of this is human construct. None of it is anything goes. All of this was declared by the Son of God himself as I am. The way, the truth, the life, and not one human being can ever be restored to God and be given entrance into his heaven except through him, repenting of our sin and taking him as the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And thanks be to God for providing us with that only way, only truth, and only life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we, while we spent our, the majority of our time on this one verse, there is so much 
in just this one verse. And if we really dig into it, we'll find that the gospel message of Jesus, repenting of our sin, taking him as our Savior and King, is all wrapped up in it. And we thank you for providing a way, the way, the truth, and the life for us to be restored to you through the repentance of our sin and be able to have an eternity spent with you to look forward to while enjoying the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in this life. May we worship you and thank you every day for that. In Jesus' name, amen.